Welcome to you, wherever you are at, whomever you are with. We are so very glad that you are with us for these few moments together. Do want to mention again the version, wonderful resource. Uh, you can search for it in your app store. Get it on your phone or your device. All kinds of good reading plans there that'll get you into God's Word. And also, uh, if you look under events, you'll find Arlington FM Church and a complete set of notes for today's message. Well, I do want to jump right in uh, to our message uh, this weekend. We are in a series called Almost Happy. And uh, it's based on the idea that in many things in life, almost is okay. But when it comes to our happiness, uh, it's really the almost that can set us up uh, to fail. In fact, listen to the words of Jesus. He said, I have come that you may have life and have it to the full. There's nothing almost about that promise. Uh, in John chapter 15, he said, these things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. You know, when it comes to our personal happiness, uh, in our culture, in our world today, there are many things that pretend to give us happiness, uh, instant gratification. But the reality is, the majority of those things, uh, whether it's uh, you know engagement in social media, or uh, buying anything that we need, or the next travel experience, those all can be good, but when it comes to our personal happiness, all of those things will leave us lacking and leave us searching for what is missing uh, in our lives. Uh, according to the experts, and the only reason we include these viewpoints in this series is because all of these observations line up with what God teaches in the scriptures and what Jesus lived out and what he taught about experiencing the joy that he had. But uh, the experts and the theologians and the therapists all agree that these are essential for authentic happiness. They are having a mission or a purpose in life that is bigger than ourselves. Uh, they, uh, it includes a positive view of your personal narrative that uh, with all the ups and downs in life, uh, my life is good and there are good things that God has done in me and through me. Uh, the ability uh, to see value and meaning in life's difficulties, uh, turning our sufferings into progress. Uh, we use the term um, uh, post-traumatic growth, which is, uh, again, using our most difficult challenges for good. And then finally, meaningful connections to God and to people, uh, to a sense of spirituality. All of these things have proven to be the, the elements that make for an overflowing kind of happiness and longevity and good health. Uh, we're looking at the Apostle Paul's letter to a group of his friends uh, to, at a church that he had established in the city of Philippi. And uh, this amazing letter uh, really could be uh, uh, summarized in Paul's statement in chapter 4. He says, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. In fact, in, in this short four-chapter letter, uh, Paul uses the word joy and rejoice 16 times. So it's a message about learning to experience happiness and joy and well-being according to the values and the priorities that God established in Jesus Christ. Um, 
In fact, last week, if you were with us, uh, we came through really one of Paul's central ideas in this letter, is that uh, his friends in Philippi had allowed conflict to separate them from one another, to derail them uh, from their great purpose and calling as followers of Jesus Christ. And so he invites them uh, back into a place of being of one mind and of one love and having the same purpose as they followed Christ together. And uh, he lifts up this picture of Jesus Christ as, as the central focus of our faith. And he says, although Jesus existed in the form of God, he didn't cling to that. He didn't grasp to that, but he emptied himself. He became a, a man like, uh, like us. And being found in human form, Paul says, he humbled himself. And he became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. So Paul uses this example of Christ as pursuing the interests of others and invites us to uh, realign ourselves with his great example. Uh, I'm going to ask, has anyone listening to this message ever traveled to Yosemite National Park? Well, if you have, you know that when you drive into the, uh, the, the National Park gates, uh, within a, a few miles, you, you're confronted with this amazing geological formation known as El Capitan. And uh, it's just a marvel to behold. But the thing you notice uh, about this incredible mountain is whether you're coming or whether you're going or whether you're hiking in the mountains uh, around along the ridge lines, you're always uh, aware of the imposing presence of this majestic mountain. Well, Paul presents Jesus Christ like that. And he says, uh, in a sense, uh, Jesus embodies all of the essential aspects of true happiness. He brings a mission that is greater uh, than himself. Uh, he realizes that his story is an incredibly good narrative. He turned his sufferings into the greatest gain our world has ever known. In fact, the Bible says, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. And uh, he extends that focus on the things that truly do bring fulfillment. He extends that to us. And uh, he invites us to move way beyond almost happy and to experience a joy that is exceedingly great and overflowing. And uh, this amazing letter that Paul writes to the Philippians is about bringing them back into uh, that focus on the way that Jesus Christ comes to show us to a fullness of life. And uh, maybe you're asking as you hear this, well, how do I get in on that? And I'm glad you asked because that's the essence of this message this morning after Paul calls these Christ followers to quit living at odds with one another, uh, to quit allowing conflict to distance them from others who have the same amazing calling in Christ. He writes these words, uh, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, uh, and may maybe you're thinking, wait a minute, I thought we were talking about happiness. What's with that word obey? Uh, how did that creep in there? Well, the point is this. Uh, there's a fullness that comes into our lives when we align our hearts with God's will for us. And that, in essence, is what Paul means when he says, obey as you have always obeyed. You know, one of the great uh, psalm writers of the Bible, King David, 
uh, he had a part in a, a point in his life where he had really messed up badly. He made some really stupid choices, uh, had a man murdered, uh, took his wife as his own, committed adultery. And when God called him a, to account uh, for the stupid choices he had made in his life, a Psalm 51 is a reflection of David's. And at one point in that psalm, he asked God uh, to make him of such a disposition that he's not like a beast that has to be yanked about by a bit and a bridle. But instead, he says, God, uh, lead me by your spirit. Allow your spirit to nudge me and direct my steps and keep me from making the kind of life-altering choices that I'm experiencing the consequences of. And it's that idea of obedience that when we can align ourselves with God's good and perfect will, things will go well for us. In fact, Paul would say, you want to get happy? You want to move towards lasting joy? We'll begin by learning the, the joy of walking in step with God and his will for us. Uh, Jesus said it like this, take my yoke upon me and learn from me, for my way is easy and my burden is light. And so Paul goes on, as you've always obeyed, not only in my presence, not just when I'm looking over your shoulder, but uh, when you're alone, when no one else is looking, uh, when no one sees into your heart and into your inner thoughts, in those moments, Paul says, align yourself with God and things will go well with you. And he continues, uh, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Uh, you know, our salvation is really a God thing. In fact, the Bible clearly teaches it's not by works that anyone is saved. It's a free gift from God. And so when you think about how God has made us right with him through the finished work of Jesus Christ, he's canceled out our debt. Our, our sin has been removed from us. Uh, in God's sight, we're declared to be holy and blameless. Uh, he's made us his children. He's called us a new creation. In fact, the New Testament refers to us as saints. And uh, so those are all the things that God has already done through the cross of Jesus Christ. And then Paul says, now live that out. Work that out. Uh, press that out into the details of your inner world and into your relationships and into your values and into your priorities. And he uses this interesting phrase. He says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, with fear and trembling. And it's interesting, the Greek language here, it's uh, not so much shake, shaking in our boots, you know, afraid that we're going to misstep or God's going to whack us if we don't completely fulfill his will. But the idea of working out your salvation, living it out in fear and trembling, it, it, the Greek is kind of like this. It equals, I don't want to screw this up. Uh, this is such an amazing opportunity that God has put in front of me, and uh, I don't want to mess it up. I want to do it well. Uh, maybe you've uh, seen this guy before, in case you didn't recognize him. Uh, his name is Raphael Nadel, Nadel and uh, he's a tennis beast. He's the only tennis player to be ranked number one in the world in three different decades and he's only 35 now, so he must have started when he was quite young. Uh, but he's won uh, 30 Grand Slam titles. 
He's won 13 French Opens. Both of these are world records. And uh, last week, I saw an interview with uh, Rafael Nadell, and uh, he, was, um, he was confessing something that, that motivates him. And here's what he said. He said, I have doubts. And uh, the, the interviewer was quite taken back by this, someone of his stature being an absolute tennis beast. He said, what do you mean you have doubts? And uh, here was his response. He said, if I don't feel doubt, I'm in trouble. If you don't have doubt, it's probably that you're being arrogant. I think it's good for me because then I feel alert. Doubt is very important to my success. Well, what is he saying? He's saying, I have this great opportunity in front of me. Uh, incredible doors have opened up to me because of this game of tennis, and I really don't want to screw it up. And so I, I approach it uh, not arrogantly, not haphazardly, but as someone who really, really wants to take full advantage of this incredible opportunity. And that's the idea that the apostle invites us who truly want to experience joy overflowing. He says, work out this incredible open door that God has put before you through the cross of Jesus Christ. He goes on, as you've always obeyed, not only in my presence, but in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And then this amazing truth, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Now, you talk about a recipe uh, for real joy, for real happiness. Uh, Paul is essentially saying this, uh, approach this amazing grace that we've been given uh, to become new creations, to have an eternal inheritance, to have a lifelong purpose that really has no end, it, it, to approach that with this awareness do everything you can not to mess it up, but know this, God is the one who's working in you. God, it's his handiwork that is at work in our lives, and that's an incredible truth for anyone, uh, even if you're not religious, to, to realize that uh, behind all of creation, there is this loving uh, personality revealed through Jesus Christ, who uh, infinite uh, be no beginning and no end, eternal, all-powerful, all-wise, is working in you and I to, to make us something unique, uh, to work his good and perfect will out in each one of us. It's, uh, it's almost as if you found an old violin up in your attic, and uh, you began to dust it off, and as you turned it around and looked inside, you saw a label and lo and behold, it said Stradivarius. And you thought, what? What in the world could this actually be? And then you find out, indeed it is. And that it's that idea that Paul says we should approach our, our working out, living out in all of our priorities and relationships, our faith in Jesus Christ with fear and trembling because God is working in us through all the ups and downs in life and all of our predicaments and the Apostle Paul would say, once you begin to dial into that, uh, as he writes this letter from prison, your prisons become opportunities. Your chains uh, really don't hold you back. 
There's no circumstance in life that can remove you from joy unspeakable and the glory that God is working in us and through us. In fact, uh, uh, Paul will end this uh, little encouragement, this section of his letter, by pointing out the one thing that can throw us off track, the one behavior that can screw everything up. In fact, these Philippians uh, were beginning to get derailed in this way of living out their faith. Uh, and Paul addresses that, and it's where we'll go this morning. He says, uh, do everything then as you're working out your salvation with fear and trembling. Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. See, it's the... Uh, it's the grumbling, it's the complaining, and uh, Paul's uh, address is particularly focused on their grumbling and complaining about each other. You know, as they were doing life together, as, as life does what it does and throws us a variety of circumstance, uh, they begin to turn their annoyance on one another. They begin to find fault with each other. They begin to find reasons why they should distance themselves from this brother in Christ and that follower of Jesus. And, and, and Paul says, look, if you really want to mess up your salvation, if you want to derail your purpose and this uh, overriding sense of joy that God is wanting to work in you, just do this. Just grumble and complain about each other. And uh, it'll, it'll surely... Uh, deaden and dampen your faith and your joy. You know, there are many ways we can mishandle conflict. Uh, just to name a few of them, we can avoid it, pretend that it doesn't exist. We can become defensive as if there's nothing in us that might need to be adjusted or corrected. We can overgeneralize. And, say, you know, if somebody's maybe coming up short in this area, then they are altogether a loser and we write them off as not being worthy of our best investment. Uh, we can aim at being right in every conflict rather than understanding one another. We can forget to listen. We can play the blame game and, and try to find someone who's culpable and uh, should be punished. We can make character attacks. And rather than talking about the individual situation, again, we tether it to uh, some judgment on the people that we are experiencing conflict with. And then finally, we can just distance ourselves, stonewall, uh, shun, call it what you want, but we turn away from rather than toward our brothers and sisters in Christ. We force our own viewpoints. We publicly assassinate and uh, ridicule others. And uh, here's, a, here's a great uh, observation from neuroscientists about negativity and uh, how it is we fall into patterns of life and ways of viewing relationships and ways of dealing with conflict. And here's the very profound, highly intellectual statement made by neuroscientists. The more you do something, the more you do something. You, you should hear that again. The more you do something, the more you do something. And what they're observing is that uh, when we allow our thoughts to drift towards what is wrong, towards what is negative, towards arguing, towards complaining, we're actually developing patterns of thought, neuropathways 
and we're more likely to do it again a next time, and a next time, and a, and a next time, and it becomes a, a way of following Christ. You know, I've, I've seen and I've been a part of Christian circles where there's almost the feeling that being a Christian gives us permission to critique everyone and everything, that somehow we have this great gift of discernment and we can judge uh, who's, who's right and who's wrong. And, uh, you know, I've been a part of committees where it seemed like the whole meeting was a two-hour gripe session. And uh, the more we do something, the more we do something. The truth is negativity breeds more negativity. And, and here's the, 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 the real kicker as it relates to our joy and our happiness. Uh, neuroscientists again have found that when, when our thoughts are negative, we actually invite inflammation into our bodies, into our brains, and uh, the beginning of what's called calcification. And uh, this is a condition in our brain that actually leads to uh, dementia and uh, Alzheimer's disease. So we're actually uh, not only uh, putting a lid on our personal happiness and joy when we lean towards negativity, uh, but we're also inviting a sickness and uh, deterioration of our higher functions. Uh, James, the brother of Jesus, talks about the words that we use in addressing each other. Here's what he says, James chapter 3, verse 6. Uh, this is according to the message translation. It only takes a spark, remember, to set off a forest fire. A careless or a wrongly placed word out of your mouth can do that. Uh, by our speech, we can ruin the world. We can turn harmony into chaos. We can throw mud on a reputation. We send the whole world up in smoke, and we go up in smoke with it. Smoke right from the pit of hell. Wow, James uh, cuts through the mustard and really tells it like it is. Our, our words are not neutral. Our negative uh, perspectives, sharing them with one another is devastating and destructive, and the very least of which it not only uh, hinders our pursuit of joy and our carrying out the mission of Jesus and living out our salvation with fear and trembling, but it destroys our relationships. You know, the wisdom of Solomon uh, touches on the same reality, only much more succinctly. Here's what Solomon writes, Proverbs 18, verse 8. The words of a gossiper are like dainty morsels, and they go down into the innermost parts of the body. In other words, when we critique and criticize and grumble against others, there's something satisfying about it. It's like a dainty morsel. You know, there, there's something initially that feels like, oh yeah, I share that same perspective with you. But there's an edge, there's a consequence. And Solomon says uh, these words go down into the innermost parts of our bodies uh, where they wreak havoc and they bring destruction and they invite the kind of ill health that we spoke about. Uh, you know, when we speak to someone uh, who about our complaints against people, when we gripe and argue against the wisdom of Paul and the wisdom of James, uh, it's almost like we're offering someone with diabetes a dozen chocolate eclairs and sitting with them while they eat it, knowing that what they're taking into their body 
is going to wreak havoc upon their personal health. And so Paul's words, they draw us back to our purpose, back to our mission, that we are to live as representatives of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And Paul says the outcome of choosing to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, to obey and align with God, and to uh, forbid ourselves the option of negativity and grumbling and complaining. He said the consequence of that will be wonderful. Uh, Philippians 4, verse 14, then, then you will shine among your culture, among people, like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. See, Paul had just said that uh, we will we'll shine amidst a culture that is crooked, that is twisted. Uh, how many of you would agree that uh, our culture is generally negative right now? Uh, look at the news for a few hours and you'll see that there's just literally uh, an abyss of negativity. And uh, Paul says, when we choose to not allow ourselves that disposition, something really good happens. We, we begin to shine like stars in the sky as we hold firmly uh, to the word of life, to who we are in Jesus and what he has promised uh, to bring about in our lives. Uh, you know, I'll end with a, a personal illustration. I love this idea of stars shining in the darkened sky. In fact, on my vacation last week, I actually learned that there are areas around the city of Phoenix called uh, dark sky areas where you can get away from the city lights and in the darkness there marvel at the uh, heavenly uh, bodies. Uh, I was uh, reminded this week, uh, a number of years ago, uh, it was really kind of the first summer my wife and I were true empty nesters after raising our four kids off to be married, some of them off to college, uh, but that summer, we gathered with the kids, uh, those who were married with their spouses. We, we gathered at a cabin in eastern Oregon. And there for a week, uh, just spent wonderful times hiking, bicycling, putting jigsaw puzzles together, and just enjoying uh, being family together. But uh, as we came to the end of the week, and the kids began to peel off and get in their cars and head to their separate spots, uh, Kind of in the evening of Friday, uh, my wife and I were left in this cabin alone together. And it was kind of a stark reminder that we're entering a new season of life. And uh, it occurred to us, uh, hey, we've never been to the Pine Mountain Observatory. And so uh, even though it was 10 o'clock at night, we called and were surprised to get an answer and said, hey, are you guys, are you open tonight? And uh, I'll never forget the guy's response. He said, hey, the uh, rings around Saturn are beautiful tonight. Come on up. And so my wife and I, uh, 10 in the evening, got in our car, drove 40 miles through the desert, up this uh, Pine Mountain gravel road. And uh, as we arrived in the parking lot, uh, there were a series of infrared lights marking the way up to where the telescopes were. And I'll never forget that night as we stood there under the frigid, uh, in the frigid air, looking at the darkened sky and marveling at the beauty of God's creation. And uh, I don't know how else to describe it other than to say that in those moments, God restored my soul. 
there was something beautifully restorative and regenerative just about being together and being underneath God's starry host. Well, Paul addresses that reality and says when we choose to align ourselves with God's good and perfect will for us, we not only experience personal happiness, but together we become like that starry host that shines hope and and promise uh, to a world that is desperately in need of it. I'm going to ask you if you join me in prayer. And as you do, uh, I want to read these words from Psalm 19. The psalmist marvels at God's creation in the heavens. He says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, these starry hosts reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They don't use words. No sound is heard from them, and yet their voice goes out into all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. Lord, I want to thank you that you have a recipe for our fulfillment, for our happiness, for our joy, not only eternally, but in this life as well. And maybe as you're hearing this message this weekend, you're thinking, you know, I've, I've heard about Jesus. I've admired Jesus, but I've never become a follower of Jesus. And I want to invite you uh, to make that decision, uh, to align, uh, to, to use a word that's often shunned, obey, and begin to realize that uh, he loves you so much. The one who was equal to God emptied himself so that you could be made full. And I, I want to lead you in a prayer. And you just say, Lord Jesus, uh, I do uh, believe what I've heard about you. There's something in my heart that acknowledges you are true. And uh, I've never committed my life to follow you. But I'm doing that now. Uh, I'm aligning with what I know to be your will, Lord. And I'm asking you to make me a new creation. Uh, bring salvation to me. Release me from my sins and help me begin to get on that journey, going where you're going and uh, being filled with a joy unspeakable. And Lord, for all of us, uh, I just want to thank you so much for this series where you're reminding us of the things that truly do make for joy and completeness. And Lord, I would just pray uh, that if any of us uh, have fallen into a casual response to who you are, and how you've stepped into our lives. And Lord, maybe we're being haphazard. Uh, maybe we don't have those appropriate doubts that would keep us alert and, and make us uh, live our lives with a sense of, I don't want to screw this up. And so, Lord, would you restore that to us uh, in those quiet places when it's just you and us, when it's just our thoughts before your scrutiny, Lord, would would we align ourselves? And Lord, maybe there's some hearing this message that have allowed negativity to seep into their outlook. We can certainly understand that, Lord, given what our world has come through these last couple of years. But Lord, that's not what you have for us. You said that we can be joyful in any and all circumstance because you are faithful and you began a good work in us and you are working today, Lord, whether we acknowledge it or not. And so, Lord, I pray uh, that that appropriate sense 
of fear and trembling would return to us. And Lord, if there's any division that we've allowed between us and another follower of yours, that you would bring that to our attention. We would ask like David, Lord, don't let me be like a beast who has to be led about through consequences and yanked about. But Lord, let me be gently led and directed by your spirit, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.